This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the Full Cry Podcast. Right, Paul McNamara, thank you for coming on the show and giving me your time all the way from Australia. Whereabouts over there are you based? Uh, I'm based in northern New South Wales, um, just a couple of hours south of Brisbane, uh, but still okay. in New South Wales where Sydney is. Uh, most of your listeners would be aware of that. Yeah, I do have quite a... Well, it's I think it's my third key demographic is Australia, so hopefully some people are listening. For those of us who aren't the best at geography, including myself, whereabouts on the island is New South Wales? Well, it's on the east coast and it's sort of halfway up really. Uh, you've got Queensland up to the top and Victoria below there. It's not exactly equal um, the, the way it's cut up, but um, yeah, New South Wales is sort of in the middle on the right as you look at the globe. Okay. I keep saying to myself, I'm going to go to Australia. But all the creepy crawlies that you have over there and the big killer spiders and the snakes and all that, it just puts me off, Paul, I won't lie. Well, you should come to my house because uh, just the other day we had a a big carpet python in the backyard. The dog started barking. It was about uh, two and a half metres long. Um, oh, and it it's made its way up into the roof now. So oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, yeah, they're they're harmless enough to people, but uh, you know, if you're a rat or something like that, uh, yeah, you keep out of their way. But uh, yeah, I like snakes, but you know, they are snakes, spiders. It's all a part of Australia. Yeah. Oh, so two and a half meters. What's that in feet? What's that about eight feet or something? Nine feet, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. About eight, I eight feet, I think. Yeah, I'm mm. used to feet over here. Right, so the reason we're here, Paul, you reached out to me on LinkedIn, I think it was, a little while ago. Yes. And you mentioned mm. that you've got this book that you got published last year, and it's called The Criminal Class, Memoir of a Prison Teacher. Now, here in the UK, I don't think you can get a copy of the, the physical book, the, the paperback, but you can get it on Kindle, and I will link it in this episode. I listened to it on Audible. And the book is narrated by John Robertson, who, by the way, did a fantastic job. Were you happy with John's performance on this? Yeah, I was happy with his performance. And uh, when the publisher told me it was going to be in an audio book, I was quite happy they didn't want me to read it as well, (laughs) because I I thought that would be quite a challenge, actually. But uh, yeah, no, he's done a a good job. And a lot of people have... um, expressed you know that they've really enjoyed the story as an audio book uh listening to it in their car driving to work and it's all been good feedback from that it is really considering it's such a i suppose it's kind of a serious subject really is it because it involves prisons and prisoners and people who have committed crimes but it's it's got such a a funny side to it. And I think that's probably the Australian sense of humor and the accent always helps. I, I love the accent personally. So, so I mean, <laughs> yeah. if if we just go back to, to your career then, so you've worked in both the, the juvenile system as well as the, the formal prison system for better use of a term. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something I really knew existed, I'll be honest. Maybe that's naivety on my part, but I didn't realize that teaching prisoners was a thing, that there was an education department. How did you become involved in that? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because uh, when when I started there, until I did start, I didn't actually realise there was education in prisons either. I was um, a, a, an adult teacher. I was teaching English as a second language mainly and a position came up uh, to be a, a teacher in the jail. Uh, that was when I first sort of considered it. I wasn't really sure whether to do it or not. Uh, had long conversations with my wife and then eventually um, went there and applied for the position and got it. But before that, I had no idea that there was education in jail and I didn't really know what they would be studying in jail either until I started there. What does the interview process look like? I've got this vision of the film The Shining where Jack Nicholson (laughs) goes to interview for the caretaker job at the Overlook and the guy kind of says, look, it kind of warns him about the the dangers of the job. Was there anything like that that cropped up in the interview? Well, uh, I describe it in the book pretty much sort of what happened. Uh, when you first arrive, you sort of all your senses are overwhelmed by, you know, the barbed wire, the guards. You know, we have guards in towers uh, in Australia still in some jails. All the the barbed wire, the the um, prisoners in wear green, and the guards are wearing blue. Um, everyone's got keys on lanyards tied up. You know, it's it's like, you know, you see in the movies and it's quite daunting to go in there and do that. And then, you know, I was led to the education area. I, I had my interview there. And while I was actually there, you know, they give you a bit of a rundown of um, security concerns. And as I described in the first chapter of the book, they actually came in and they did a... They had the dogs and they came, the guards came in, had the dogs, and they did a bit of a raid of the education area in the library. And they lined all the um, prisoners up and did a search. And while that was going on, I couldn't leave the, the office that I was in. So, yeah, you did get a sense straight away that it was somewhere else that you were going to be working. You mentioned at one point, I think, when you were sort of walking across the yard, and bear in mind you are separated from from the prisoners. But mm-hmm. the kind of the kind of shouting they call the people chief, right? That's what they call the people in, yeah, in, in yeah. authority there. And you said that a lot of the prisoners, when they spot new meat or you know new flesh, whatever you want to call it, someone new yeah. to the role, they, they try and take advantage of that. What were your experiences of people trying to play on your greenness? I suppose. Yeah, well, it is real. They do warn you about it, and they call it uh, officer shopping over here, where they'll go up to a guard and they'll ask for something. If he tells them no, then later on they'll go and ask somebody else the same question. And it may start off as something small, but uh, what we were told is they're trying to find their way in. For example, because I was in education, they would ask for things like, oh, you know, chief, I want to write a letter home. Could I get a pen? And, you know, a pen can be used as a weapon. It can be used as a syringe, can be used for writing as well, I suppose. But unless they were actually doing an education course, they couldn't access pens from us up in education. So, you know, that was a no-no. So when a guy would come in and he'd ask that, he'd know that he's not allowed to get that, but he would be asking that of me because I'm new 
and maybe he'll give me a pen. And then if I get a pen off him later on, I'll ask him for some paper. And then later on, I might ask him something else about his family. And they Mm -hmm. start to sort of ingratiate themselves with you. And while I was working in the prison system, there was a guard who got into a whole heap of trouble. And what he was doing was in the um, plastic water bottles, he was bringing in uh, gin and vodka so he'd come into work every day with a big bottle of water sealed up and, you know, that actually had alcohol in it. And when they got to the bottom of it and found out what was going on, this guy had been um, pressed by prisoners to bring that in and they knew where his family was and they said, you know, if we know where you live now, if, you know, if you want, you know, things to run smoothly, you'll do that for us and we'll, there'll be a little bit of money in it for you as well, you know. So you never knew where that kind of thing might lead. So I always played, you know, with the cricket term, I'd played with a straight bat all the time and they'd, they'd realise that this guy's no good. Some guys would get pretty cranky at that. But, you know, the other thing is when you are in the prison uh, and you're a civilian inside there, you're with the power, really. So, as you said, you know, I'm separated from from them by the wire fence. You know, if I was on the other side of that fence, it'd be a whole different story. I think the book opens with, I don't know the exact words, so I'm kind of paraphrasing, but you mentioned that you walk into a room with a murderer, a rapist, someone who's committed GBH, and... A robber potentially was the fourth yeah, one. Yeah, an I think. armed robber. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you voluntarily given each of them a pencil, mm-hmm. and there's obviously the fear in the back of your mind that something could go wrong here. What I took from that that I found interesting, and you do allude to this in the book, is that you always went out of your way to find out what your students were in prison for. Which, when I've spoke to people who have worked in prisons before, they've sometimes gone the opposite rate way and not wanted Mm. to know so that they could not prejudge them, I suppose. What was your logic behind wanting to find out what they'd been put to prison for? Yeah, well, see, I was employed as an education officer, and one of the roles was we would facilitate external education. So they could do college courses or they could do university courses, and you had to have a look at their uh, criminal record to make sure You know, like if someone was in for fraud, you wouldn't be getting them to do some kind of uh, business course. And, you know, the classic that I talk about in the book was there was one guy who wanted to study chemistry and what he was in for was for manufacturing speed, you know. So um, you sort of had to vet the courses that they were going to do. So you actually had to have a look at their, their record as well, you know, sometimes you might look at the duration of it. But as you said, you know, like it did become troubling in some ways because, you know, you would have some people who were in there for some pretty awful crimes that you'd have to sit there and talk to and work with. And uh, in some of those cases, it was better not to know. The thing I've spoken to other people about is that, you know, like if you get on the bus or the train, you know, you, you never know who are the people in the carriage with you in the bus, you know, what they may have done at some point. So you were sort of pretty well informed while you were in the jail system. Was there a time when you felt sort of 
I don't want to say scared, but was there a time when you felt your life was in danger or what's the worst situation you've been put in as a teacher? Personally, uh, there were sometimes, you know, like we were talking about earlier, when you would say no to a person, especially, you know, some guys were quite violent and you knew of their reputation in the jail and you'd be telling them no. And you could see in their eyes that if the situation was slightly different, you'd be in a lot of trouble. Uh, But again, you sort of had that power or weight behind you. Before I did start at the jail that I was working at, there was a guard who was killed. I actually, you know, worked with people who were there when that guard was killed. So, you know, their recall of that was quite startling for me. And while I was working in the system as well, there were there were a number of prisoner-on-prisoner assaults, um, some quite severe where people were hospitalised and there was even a case where um, one guy was hit very hard with a blade from a printing room and it, it split his head open. So, you know, there was always that kind of potential and it did feel... A lot of the times that it was sort of a powder keg and if things went the wrong way, it could go pretty badly. But fortunately for me, um, nothing really happened like that in my class towards me. There would be threats made to other prisoners, you know, if someone got out of line and in the library occasionally there'd be a fight. But in general, for me, it, it was pretty safe. How do you balance the work and home life? Because if you're seeing some stuff that not many people of the general public will ever see and your experiences mm. like that, you, you're you leaving yourself open to it and it could have a mental effect. And then you have to go home. And, you, you know, you mentioned your wife, so you're going home to be a husband and family man. How do you balance that life? Yeah, it's interesting. Like when I first did work in the jail, you know, my wife would ask me, you know, what happened today and I'd tell her stories and then uh, it would get to the point uh, where I'd actually think uh, I'm not really going to talk about some of the things that I saw or heard today, you know. My uh, kids are grown up now, but when they were younger, um, of course, you know, they, they knew where I worked, but uh, I didn't really relate any of the stories back to them and would try and focus on a positive. But, yeah, there were some things because, um, you know, there were sex crimes, people, there were, uh, you know, child sex offenders as well. There were some things that were actually quite disturbing. I can see how if you're in that position for a long time, Within that system, they actually have child sex offender units, you know, and I could imagine that that wouldn't be somewhere where you would want to stay for too long. You'd sort of get some kind of PTSD from that. You know, I take my hat off to the people who work in those uh, different systems, but you sort of do have to decompartmentalise. How do you say it? Decompartmentalise. Yeah, decompartmentalise, yeah. When you went in, it mentioned sort of on the about section of the book that you never held a political position on the prison system. You knew very little of the workings of a jail. There was mm. one, char- one character in the book, I, f- I forget the character's name, forgive me, but he mentioned duty of care. Now, oh, yeah. ca- care, he said, stands for cover arse, retain employment, which yeah. listening to the audio book kind of 
come across that was a bit of a eureka moment for yourself as if to think hang on a minute there's more to play here than actually caring for the prisoners can you tell me a little bit about that as you said like i didn't know much of prisons i knew you know prison wasn't an ideal place to go and you know you do something wrong you end up there but apart from that i hadn't really sort of considered it too much Uh, i'd been fortunate enough to sidestep it myself once I did get in there and, you know, they, there was a lot of talk when you have uh, meetings and professional days and there's a lot of stuff about, you know, duty of care towards, you know, the prisoners, towards yourselves, you know, safety, all those kind of concerns. And then the person uh, in the book who does talk about care being covering your ass was quite high up in it. What I started to see after a while was that, When problems did come up, when, you know, they would talk about, you know, the shit hitting the fan, that what was the um, main priority was to cover yourself. If it wasn't going to come back onto you, then you would have that job, you know, for a while and started to see that there were a lot of different factors at play within the whole system. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of different priorities one thing I try to draw out in the book is there's a big clash between what prisons are actually for, you know, whether they're for punishment, whether they're there for rehabilitation. And, you know, there's a, an ongoing battle uh, that I saw within the system here. And from what I hear from people now that I've had the book out and people have reached out to me from, you know, the states and, and different places, yeah, there seems to be that whole politics behind the whole system as well, right across the world. What's your take on the rehabilitation side? So as an educator there, did you see the connection between what you were trying to do and rehabilitation? Or was it a case of punishment was the priority? What's your experience of that side? Yeah, well, as I said, there were different people in there doing different jobs and and that was, you know, uh, where that clash came in. So for the guards, the main idea was that no one, that everyone came home uh, safe and that no one escaped. And they were their main two priorities. So then you'd have psychologists who, you know, want to work with people, uh, change their thinking with me as an educator, wanted to raise their literacy and numeracy standards, get them to look at other avenues to make money when they get out. And that was the other thing that was sort of really hit me in the face as well was the really low levels of literacy and numeracy in the prison population. And that's why, you know, I called it the criminal class as well, because in England, you've got your class system, you know, it's sort of been quite well defined. And, and in places like Australia and America, there's not supposed to be that class system. But when you do get behind the gates, you know, you do notice that, uh, you know, it's mainly filled by the underclasses in there. My job as, as a, an educator were, would be to, you know, raise that education level so that people could function and and do other things and you know that was the intention and we would have our wins which made the job worthwhile but as i said you know there were a lot of different factors going on at once and to illustrate it we had this external education uh, area that i was telling you about so people would go to universities and colleges and we would vet them 
line them up with these courses, um, you know, arrange their fares. They would go out. And then there was another section of corrections in the jail system, and they would be going to the colleges and grabbing these people out of classes, drug testing them and seeing if they were up to any kind of mischief. So, like, one part of the jail was sending them out to, uh, you know, better themselves, and another part of the system was trying to catch them and get them back in there. Do you get to hear much once the prisoners have left prison? So do you ever hear success stories or do you have to just hope for the best? And I guess if you don't see them back in in a couple of weeks, that kind of gives an indication that you may have a little win? Yeah, um, it's difficult because you're not supposed to have any uh, external relationship with a prisoner uh, when you're in the system because it can lead to all kinds of corruption. So once they had gone, as you said, you know, we would have guys who I remember doing courses and then by the time the certificates had arrived for me, I'd be thinking, where am I going to send this off to? And then they'd say, oh, this guy's already back, you know. So there was a, a real high turnaround. But the wins were when you would see somebody would, you know, get to the point where they think, I can't just keep doing crime for the rest of my life. It, it you know, hasn't been successful now. They would do some education with us and, you know, we had people complete courses. There were even things, you know, we had nice stories. Like we actually had a section where we would get adult male prisoners and they would read children's books aloud and we would record it and then they could send that home to their kids. And then their kids could hear dad read a bedtime story, you know. Mm -hmm. So there were little, you know, touches like that where, you know, sort of made it worthwhile. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now back to the story. For the prisoners that do come back quite often, you mentioned there's some that think, "I, I don't want to do this life of crime anymore. For those that do, what do you think? Is the the thought process there? Is prison all they know? Is it too comfortable for them? What's the logic behind continuously coming back? Yeah, that's interesting too because um, I I would talk to guys and they would say to me, when I'm on the outside, I've got to figure out how I get the money for rent. I've got to have you know somewhere to live. I've got to be chasing uh, food. I've got you know all these other pressures. Getting a car like registering a car, having a driver's license. You know, when I'm inside, you know, I know I've got a shower. I know I've got my three square meals. I know the routines. I understand how, you know, what I can and can't do. And, you know, they really, um, really are institutionalised, you know, and they they see that as like a normal way of life. There are others who would think, well, I'm going to go out, I'm going to take as many drugs as I can while I'm out, I'll grab as much money, spend as much money, I'll go crazy doing whatever I'm doing and coming to jail is just an occupational hazard Um, and they'll just take that risk. So with guys like that, you know, it was, you know, education's not really going to help but for others who can see that there are alternatives, I mean, the saddest thing for me is, you know, working in juvenile detention when you see kids who are like, 14 and 15 who think this is going to be my life and I'm going to go to jail like you know my brother and my dad maybe 
you know, and you just think they're young and they've got that, so much potential and there's so many other avenues they see being incarcerated as, you know, just part of the life's process. How do you approach dealing with prisoners who have low numeracy and literacy rates? Because for people that struggle to read and write, it can be something that they might be embarrassed about. They might feel ashamed that they can't. And you're dealing with people who Mm. are in prison potentially for violent crimes with short fuses. What's your approach like when trying to educate these people and, and further their literacy and numeracy skills? Yeah, well, I suppose that's where you, your sort of teaching comes in, um, that kind of training, and you you start to see, you know, get to know the person, what it is that interests them. You make them sort of realise that, you know, the classroom is going to be a safe space. And I think they did realise that, you know, that education was a haven within the jail and then in in that classroom everybody was struggling with you know reading and writing and at first you know that there'd be a wall up but that would break down over time once they sort of realize that you are actually there to help them people you know will drop that guard for a short time and because you know i i had prisoners who had kids and they wanted to like write a letter to their kid um i had another older guy who said you know He'd been in and out his whole life, had never really been to school, and he was doing seven years and he wanted to be able to read the newspaper by the time he got out, you know. So part of that was we would actually get the newspaper and we would sit down and, you know, read stories and I might read to him, I'd get him to start reading to me and correct him and different approaches for different people. I suppose the main thing is you just build that relationship with the prisoner because, you know, it's just teacher and student, really, once you're in the classroom. Are there any misconceptions that people might have about your job? So let's say you've told someone what you do. Is there anything people immediately jump on and think, oh, you know, I couldn't do that because of this? Or how do you deal with X, Y, and Z? Is there anything like that you've when you speak to these people in America or all over the world? Is there anything they have that is quite a common misconception? I suppose the thing is, um, you know, everybody sees it as uh, a dangerous role and potentially it can be in America and in Australia as well. There have been teachers who have been killed. You know, there's a lot of security processes. There's a lot of uh, training. There's physical barriers as well. As I said as well, for the prisoners, you know, when, when they're down on the yard or they're in the cells, uh, or, you know, even in the um, industries where they're working, um, there's still a lot of tension, whereas in education it was a bit more relaxed and, you know, you'd have guys who came up who would just grab a book and sit and read in the library or read a newspaper. So there wasn't that sort of, you know, somebody's going to kill me at any moment. The, the thing was that they were probably more likely to attack each other than to attack the teacher. Yeah, that's a common misconception, really. And the other thing people always want to know is, you know, what's it like in a meeting, a murderer and all these kind of characters. So, And then you, you know, find that 
a lot of these people are quite mundane, you know. And that's the thing I try to tell the kids from in juvenile detention as well is that prison isn't really that exciting a place. It's it's a lot of it is quite tedious, you know. And I tried to, you know, within within the book, paint a true picture of it and also capture a lot of the bizarreness and uh, all the humour within in all those different stories. Was there any expectation for people working or coming to education? So you mentioned people might come and they might sit in the background and just just read a book, just for a bit of me time, I guess. Was there yeah. not a, a minimum expectation that, look, you go in there because we expect you to do X, Y, and Z, or could they come and just essentially do, to a degree, whatever they chose? No, you uh, education was a privilege in jail. So to do the classes, you... Um, needed to be assessed for it and have some objective in mind. And then you had to show some kind of diligence. But there was also attached to it was the library. So there you could come up and you could just read a book or you could, in Australia, of course, it's quite hot. So you could come up and be cooler up in the library than it would be down in the cells. So they would come up and you know, maybe just sit and chat with someone and read the newspaper. But if you were doing the courses, yeah, you had to apply yourself and there had to be a reason for you to do that Um, because one of the other things is that a lot of the prisons are working prisons and the um, officers don't want guys loafing about. They want them up working in their industries. So they put an end to that pretty quickly. Did you ever experience someone who tried to almost trick the system? So the, they've gone through the assessment process to get an education. They've gotten there, but because it's a privilege, they're kind of doing it just so that they can have a bit of time away. Did anyone ever try and trick the system there? And you thought, they're not really here for the right reasons. Yeah, guys were always trying something on, you know, um, that's the, the thing, too, that you realise in a prison is they have a lot of time and they study people. And they that's what I was meaning earlier. You know, they try to figure out how can I make a way in here. Uh, you would have guys who would come up just to get away. And we also had a lot of guys who wanted to do the external education, which was something you could do right near the end of your sentence. And... A lot of guys would come up and who would be genuine, but there'd also be other guys who wanted to get out so then they can continue, you know, a life of crime. I remember one guy was a bikey and he came up and he wanted to do an external education course, I think a forklift license course. What he was trying to do was to get back with the gang while, um, you know, they were doing some big drug shipments and they wanted him out if they could get him out of there. And he would also then be able to bring drugs back into the prison. Any angle that they could think of, guys would be thinking of it and trying it out for sure. How many would you have in a class at one time? The classes sort of ranged from usually, you know, a maximum of about eight or ten, just for security reasons. And um, in the juvenile system, we would only have six in the classroom. You know, you have guards nearby in case something were to happen and you have a a red duress button on the wall that you could press, which would set an alarm off and guards would come running. So, yeah, it wasn't like a school where you'd have, you know, 
25 to 30 kids in a classroom. Yeah, I'm just thinking what the strategy looks like from your point of view. So just take me through a, a, a random day. So let's say you're going in and you've got the eight prisoners there or the six juveniles. Are you teaching a blanket lesson for them or are you individualizing it for each person? You try to do a blanket um, lesson and individualize it at the same time. So you'd have guys at all different levels. So it's quite different, say, if you're doing like year six and within that too, if you were at a school, there'd be different you know, ranges of abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but there would be 50-year-olds with 18-year-olds in the jail. There'd be guys from English as you know, would be a a second language for them. So you would try to deliver that content and then modify it for the different guys and just try to have some kind of personalised learning plan worked out with them and some supports for that. With the education, that comes towards the end of of their sentences, am I right in, in saying that? Yeah, that's for the external education. But right. um, you, you could do, yeah, the other stuff you could do sort of any time. Okay. So how long are they doing this education system for? Is it ongoing? Is it like a term at a time? How does it work that way? No, it would be ongoing. But the other thing um, that's disruptive to it is that prisons aren't there for education. So you would find you would have guys in a class. You might have, say, those eight guys. And then some trouble may have happened. The next thing is you'll find that someone's been pulled out by the guards or someone's now a key worker in a job or someone's been sent to another jail or there may be some court intervention that's happened. Yeah, that was the other sort of challenge, I suppose, for the teachers is that you might have eight guys this week and then in three or four weeks' time, you might have eight different guys in that class. You'd, you'd never quite know. And others might be there ongoing for a couple of years, you know, so it really did depend. Does it take long? So let's say you get a new group of prisoners coming in that you've never spoke to before, you've never taught before. How long does it take to get on a level with them where they can work with you? It's probably different for each person, but is there an adjustment Mm. period you like to allow yourself? Yeah, it's funny because while when I was working in juvenile detention, you would always come against this resistance, you know, to education where in juvenile they're compelled to do education and in adult system it's a privilege. So most guys wanted to be there. What I would always laugh about with the juvenile stuff was you'd say start off with six guys and everybody wants to be the biggest gangster in the room and they're going to abuse the teacher and carry on. And you just, after a while, you sort of chip away and then then they realise, okay, he's not too bad, this guy. And I've spoken about, you know, there was one guy in juvenile who said to me when he first was in my classroom, he wanted to crack a chair over my head. And uh, when he left juvenile detention, he gave me a hug before he left, you know. So you sort of break down those barriers, and which is quite good. But then 
you know, two weeks later, there's another couple of new guys who have arrived and it's like, okay, we're going to play this dance again. And, um, yeah, it's not like you get them for the year and you start them off at in January, you work it out and, you know, by December, everyone's cool. It's uh, ongoing enrolment. So, yeah, you never know what you're going to have. Have you ever had a situation where this might make more sense talking from a juvenile perspective where you've, you've finally broke down a barrier, you're breaking through with someone and then for whatever reason, they're no longer in education. Maybe with the adult side, the privilege has been removed might be a better way to Mm. look at it. Have you ever had a situation like that? And you thought, Oh, I've just broken through after weeks, let's say, and now they've been taken. The privilege is gone. Yeah, well, there was a situation that I outline in the book um, and there was a guy who was a part of an armed robbery gang and he was doing, I think he was doing about eight years and he, by this stage he must have been like in his late 20s and he he started doing education with me and then we did um, the assessment so he could do tertiary education so he could do university. So he started doing university stuff. He would have to handwrite assessments because uh, he wasn't allowed use of a computer at first. And he would set, he'd come up, he'd talk to me about the, the the subject, whatever it was that he was doing, and then he would I would get his um, assignment and I would post it. And then you know when it came back and we'd talk about the results and you know all that was going really well. He was going, you know, quite well, and this was like over a year or so. Right before he was going to complete the degree, he ended up not coming up to education anymore. And I went down to the the wings where they lived to find out what had gone on. And he was um, locked up and they were going to send him to another jail. And when I asked the guard, you know, why, what's going on, and they said, oh, he beat the hell out of some guy last night. and that guy's gone to hospital, he's getting further charges, uh, you know, yada, yada. And when I actually got to speak to the prisoner after that, he said that a new guy had arrived in the jail and he had decided he was going to hit someone because how they sort of, they got this Darwinian sort of approach, you know, like you go in there, you beat somebody up and then that means others are going to leave me alone kind of mm-hmm. idea. And he was the one who was picked. And he said, um, you know, when it happened, it happened in front of everybody. And he said, I had to do something about it. Otherwise, you know, like I'd be a target from then on. He beat the guy up. The guy went to hospital. Then this guy got regressed, as they call it, got sent to a a higher security jail. Uh, His education privileges were taken from him. And, you know, he was that close. And you just think, oh, I haven't got any hair to pull out, but, you know, I'd be pulling my hair out at, at such, you know, goings on. You'd get that close and you'd think, here's someone who's going to turn it around, can become a productive member of society when he gets out and the system itself, uh, you know, he's got to take some responsibility, but I understand why he did those actions as well. The other aspect I love about the book is all the shocking things that go on inside a prison and there were some really sort of 
gasping moments when I was listening. So for example, I think it was your first day when you rocked up and you had your phone in your pocket and you, you didn't yeah, even realize yeah. it, that you'd broken a law. Mm. There, was, there was also, you mentioned the officer that was killed. There was another prisoner, I believe, who was stabbed with, with ice that then melted. Yeah. But, so there was no murder weapon. The most shocking one for me was people that smuggle drugs into prisons. Mm. And the story you mentioned about a mother who had used her baby to to smuggle in drugs to the prison. Yeah. How numb are you to that sort of thing now? Because it's quite shocking stuff. Yeah, and that's what I mean, though. They were the kind of stories that I did write about that I didn't speak about, you know, at mm-hmm. home. And even that story, you know, like when I first heard it, you know, you just think, how could a person do that? you know, to their child and um, use them in such a way, it's terrible. And then the prison guards would tell me, you know, that that kind of um, activities that would be going on within the jail and there'd be coercion and it's like if your missus doesn't bring in these drugs, you know, like uh, I'm going to break your arms or I'm going to, you know, so she may have been protecting her partner I'm not sure, you know, the reasons why, but you start to see that, you know, there could be reasons for why people would do that. There are things you wouldn't think up yourself, you know. I suppose that's, you know, the part of the book as well, you know. It's a fictionalised account, but I wanted to make it so people didn't have a, um, like a Hollywood version of what prison systems like. Just all those kind of things like for someone to do that, What's the pressure on them and what's the pressure on maybe their partner who is in jail with some quite, uh, you know, ruthless people? That's the other thing I enjoy is that it's not just a sensationalised version of, say, that event, but you also look into, well, why has that happened? What would the consequences be if that hadn't have happened? What's the background of that person? There's a lot of common themes between these people that commit crimes that you go into in the book. I wondered if there's anything that you perhaps look back on and maybe regret from your time as a teacher. Is there anything you think, oh, I wish I would have done that differently? Yeah, I suppose there were times when um, where you feel like you weren't getting through and there were people that um, you know needed quite intensive help that you couldn't maybe give them. I used to think when I was uh, teaching the adults that if I could get a lot of these people when they were teenagers, I could make a lot more of a difference. And then when I worked in juvenile detention, I was thinking, wow, if I could get these kids when they were five or six, you know, I could really make a difference. So, yeah, I'm I'm not sure really that there was any particular regret, but it's, I suppose, the thing that's quite uh, you know, one of the questions I wanted to raise as well in the book is that are prisons really effective? And what I found was that, you know, the recidivism rate, the, the rate of people coming back in was just amazing. And um, the stats are pretty similar across the world. But in Australia, if you're in juvenile detention once, there's a 70% chance that you'll be back in. And then for those people who are in juvenile detention, there's a 50% chance that they will uh, end up in uh, mainstream adult jails. And then when you are in jail, 
there's almost a 50% chance that you'll be back within two years of release. You just think, you know, that's probably the biggest regret is that, you know, is that really an effective way of dealing with people? I mean, some people do some awful things that we've spoken about, you know, and, and they've got to be put away and maybe put away the key. But for others, they're coming back into society and, you know, what do we actually want to do with them or for them? Because that's the other thing I suppose that, you know, is was a strong feeling for me was that I grew up in a family where I had a mum and a dad and who actually cared about, you know, my upbringing. I'm not saying people have to have a mum and a dad, but, you know, I had uh, people who cared about me, people who fed me, you know, and then when I, I would look at the backgrounds of a lot of these people, you know, it's trauma after trauma, neglect. It just goes on and on. And I just, some of them, they'd have files that were so thick and you'd read them and they were just tragedies, you know, and then the next person will come in and have a similar kind of story. And I would think to myself, if if I were given the same background, I'd probably be worse than these guys, you know. So I did did I think, you know, like um, what are we doing and is it an effective way of, you know, using the taxpayers' money really? The final question the before final we close question. out, Paul, is if you could go back in time and speak to yourself on your first day in, in the prison system as a teacher, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Oh, that's an interesting question. I suppose the thing I probably would say is just sort of breathe and take it in and, um, you know, just let it be because uh, I sort of describe it in the book as well. Like on the first day I wanted to appear quite cool and uh, nonplussed by it all, but you sort of inside, you know, your head's racing, your heart's racing. Uh, like in that very first class I remember looking at the window, looking at the door, thinking, can I get out, and and feeling like the sweat running down the front of my shirt, you know, and thinking, I hope I look cool to these um, guys. So, yeah, I suppose the thing is be cool, take it all in, and, you know, know that you're actually going in there to do some good work, really. Absolutely. Well, a reminder for those listening, Paul McNamara's book is called The Criminal Class, Memoir of a Prison Teacher by Big Sky Publishing. In the UK, as I said, we can get it on Kindle here. We can get it on Audible Audiobook. If you're listening in Australia, you can get the paperback copy. I'll put links in the description. Paul, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on. And for everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed that. And please read Paul's book. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're welcome.